Welcome to Find the Outside, the podcast. Today, we are so excited to bring to you Dr. Bayo Akamalafe, who we have wanted to have on the podcast for years and finally found a way to get him on the podcast. Let me just like quickly read a quick bio. You know, we don't spend long on this, but just to give listeners a sense of who this is and why it's so awesome that he's here, except for a recent discovery that he's not into cats, which I hope you all will not hold against him. I'm certainly not going to. So let me just read the bio so we can come back on his side. Okay. Bio is a father, life partner to Edge, son, Nigerian Yoruba author, speaker, public intellectual, professor, posthumanist, poet, recovering psychologist, and a fugitive. The convener of the concepts of post-activism, transraciality, and ontofugitivity, Bio is a widely celebrated international speaker and award-winning public intellectual, essayist, and author of two books, These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, Letters to My Daughter on Humanity's Search for Home, which is from North Atlantic Books, and We Will Tell Our Own Story, The Lions of Africa Speak. He is also the executive director and chief curator for the Emergence Network, and he is writing his third book about the spirituality and emancipatory lessons of the transatlantic slave journeys called The Times Are Urgent, Let Us Slow Down. So thank you so much. And he's a catist. Let's be, let's be, let's just start this. Let's, let's, you know, I mean, all of that sounds amazing. Like, look, look, this man is a catist. It's serious. This is serious. (laughs) I'm an out of closet catist. There we go. See, (laughs) it's happened. It's happened. We all have our things. We all have our things, don't we? That is true. Good to meet you both. I'm glad to be here. Great to have you with us. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. So I'm going to just kind of start and say, we have been kind of circling around your work and you for years, Mm. just to kind of say. So we're friends with Aaron Dunford and Yeo um, out of Oaxaca. We know Manish quite well. We are on the Burkana board with him. Oh, good. Right. So so we have kind of known about you for quite some time. But my first interaction with you was actually on Facebook, which I'm no longer on, so I can't call it up for you. But uh, Aaron put up this quote from you that I reposted. So it says, Do not pray exclusively to the ancestors of the land. Make room also for the spirits of the fault line, the new gods that scream through cracks with the first musical notes of worlds to come. And I was just like, whoa, who is this person who said these words? And I I put them up on my Facebook page. And you came and said, I'm this person. I said this. (laughs) Yeah, it was really amazing. We were Facebook friends unbeknownst maybe to both of us. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. It was this amazing moment. I mean, obviously I didn't know about your feeling about cats at that point. I might not have put it up, but, but it was just this amazing moment of like, whoa, this person is kind of in my world. And so I'm interested if we could just maybe kick off with talking about both the ancestors and the new gods. I feel like there is a lot of talk right now about ancestors and ancestries and becoming good ancestries. And I'm wondering how you're making sense of kind of the pull, the pull between these poles, right? Understanding our lineages and our histories and our ancestors that are a part of us, as well as kind of like that future that that's waiting or that we're seeking or we're trying to create the new gods that are like screaming through those cracks. And I'm just wondering how you work with those poles, or do you even see them as poles, the ancestors and the new gods? Mm. Well, I was looking forward to a conversation about catism and the new movement <laughs> that is 
enveloping everyone, exciting everyone around the world. That's right. Centralizing dog lives. Um, but let's go into this. <laughs> let's go into this. <laughs> let's go into this for a bit. It's it's fascinating that we were friends on Facebook and we can say, oh, we didn't know we were friends. I think that's why Tim was laughing. There is a sense in which we speak about ancestry as if it it, it is a thing of the past, right? It's dead absence. It's, it's nothing that is productive. So it's done with, it's gone. That's only possible when you view time as this arrow of God architecture, Right. A past that is dead, we're flown into the present, and there's this slippery future yet to come. But the worlds I come from have what I've learned to start calling slushy temporalities, Um, not even circular time. Circular time is just an iteration of linear time, right? It's still forward uh, moving, right? But slushy time is one in which it's transversal chirotic time. It's a time of the crossroads. It holds space for manifold temporalities, like the time of a mountain, the time of a rock, the time of ancestries and ancestors, the time of slugs and snails, and the time of humans and trains and technology. Um, but it also allows these temporalities to cross-cut into each other. So it's slushy, right? I like to think of ancestry as active absences, Right. If you think through negative theology, negative theology thinks about processual notions of God as a moving target instead of as a stable entity, and also thinks about um, what some theologians will call apophatic theology. That is, we know God by what he isn't more than by what he is, right? Making statements about God is already a risk too great <laughs> to the concept of Godding, right? <laughs> so ancestry is a lingering presence. It's not done with, right? It's here. We're ancestralizing entities, if you will. It's a spectrum of continuity and discontinuities. It's, it's a crossroads. It's monstrous. It's chimeric. There isn't an easy way to trace genealogy. Of course, modernity would presume that there is, that you come from here and here. And I like the way Stephen Jenkinson says this, the enemy of my ancestor is also my ancestor. But even greater than that, it's not just, um, ancestry is not just human. Ancestry is more than human. It's post-human. The furniture in which my ancestor and his enemy had a battle in is also my ancestor, right? (laughs) The architecture is also ancestral. So I like to, maybe when I made that statement, I was thinking ancestry, not as a neat genealogy, not as neat lines of history, but also speculative, poetic, animist, rhizomatic networks that mean that we're not stable ourselves, we're not still. When I think of gods, on the other hand, and it's the same body that this other hand is on. I don't think it as categorically different from ancestry. I think of when I said screaming gods from cracks, I mean to say that in times of great transformative shifts and paradigm shifts, when things spill, it's almost as if the world calls us into a different form of worship. That is a different ethical context a different way of seeing ourselves, a different way of convening ancestry, a different way of saying who's here and who isn't, 
right? Modernity is a gathering ground for certain and cer- certain concepts of ancestry, and also a rejection of other forms of ancestry. The screaming gods are a clarion call to shapeshift, to become different ways of convening ancestry, if you will. So you can read them together as tensions. Most people like to focus only on ancestry, but I want to focus on gods as well. Pantheons, they're always with us. Modernity is the myth that we're alone. There's nothing else here. But if the psyche is ecological, then furniture, corners, street names are already forms of godding, if you will. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Death is a big conversation in my home at the moment. Right. And the loss of people and what happens when you lose people, you know. And so we've been in lots of conversations with both my wife and my kids about how when somebody dies, your relationship to them doesn't end. Mm. That actually, that, that, that that's a key thing to understand about death. Is that, you know, if I, if I think about that in terms of my relationship, for example, to my granddad, you know what I mean? I mean, he died when I was in my early 20s, but I absolutely still have a relationship to him. I still have conversations with him, no doubt, you know. He still gives me advice, sometimes when I don't want it. You know, <laughs> just like, like just like back when he was alive. You know, Tim like cats. Tim like cats. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the kind of thing he says in my ear, right? And then I think about stories or songs that I've heard growing up that my dad has played or told. You know, and that those, some of those have survived a long time to enter into my ear. And it was only in the last few years that I began to understand that similar as I have a relationship to my granddad when he died, like those songs are somehow and stories, because that's a lot of what I've related to more than, say, architecture, you know, like that's almost like my relationship into my ancestors. The fact they've lasted so long, right, means there's something worthwhile in there that's been passed down generation to generation and has suddenly ended up in my living room with my dad singing, you know, or like telling the story or... So I think I've been thinking a lot about that, that, you know, and when I hear you, that's a little bit of like how I make sense of some of what you're saying is that, that there's something relational there that extends beyond however I might try to intellectually understand time, right? Or space or, you know, and and I love that. And then there's this piece of like, how do I have that relationship to future generations? How do I have that relation? How do I, cause I can make, I can, I can feel in my life how I have that relationship to my granddad and hear his voice. But that piece of like reaching out to the new gods or being able to listen to the future that wants to happen, like I feel less clear on that. And I I just love to hear you talk about that. Like, what is that relationship? Like, because that may be less in the architecture, no? That That may be less in the armchair and in the songs, right? And so where do we go to hear that? Where do we go to invite that voice in so it could influence us in the way that you're suggesting is possible. Right. But this doesn't feel like a good time to speak about shit, but I'm going to take a risk and do Mm. that. Exactly. Fabulous. Mm. I think it was Ohio, a university in Ohio. Yes. That had some research around the fecal remains, fossils of communities thousands of years ago, and they studied bacterial assemblages within fecal remains. 
to understand what they ate and what was um, their diet, what constituted their diet and what they passed out and all of that. Of course, it gave very interesting insights about the microbes that are missing in our own guts today and how that might actually be influential in how modernity is convened as a concept of body proofing, as a way of situating the self, as a way of making citizen subjects. All of these things are entangled with how we eat and what eats us in return, right? So in the fossilized remains, these fecal remains, they found some stories to tell. I found that quite interesting. And I remember writing in my journal one word when I read this uh, article, ghosts, right? <laughs> like when we think about ghosts, in the, the first thing that comes to mind is Casper, the friendly ghost or some Hollywoodized version, right? Something floating down the hallway, some disembodied form. And I think that's a very Christocentric notion of a ghost, right? For me, I think of ghosts as the diasporic migrancy of bodies. That is, bodies are too unstable to be morphologically competent or to be static or to be locatable in a single uh, space-time coordinate. Many philosophers have done things about bodies. Spinoza would speak about the body and say, we don't know yet what the body can do, right? Gregory Bateson constantly tried to disabuse our minds of the habitual ways in which we perceive the body as a thing apart, instead of as, and I'm, I'm contributing this to the narrative, a cartography, so that in a sense, our bodies are cartographical projects. I'm just laying the foundation for a mic drop, Tim, okay? I'm loving it. I'm loving it. <laughs> I'm following you, and I'm you're following. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and I'm and, and I'm and I'm, I feel like you're preparing me, and I'm ready for it. I'm, I'm, I'm preparing. I'm just offering the libation, and then whoosh. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> so, how I think about ghosts is, you know, the ecstasy of the body, right? I wish we had two hours in which we can explore emotions, those things that we like to think of as territorially ours. They're they're within us. I feel joy. I feel grief. I feel this. Some interesting research, I won't go into the details of it, suggests that that's not quite the case, that depression is in the air. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and I'm not even following Teresa Brennan here. Teresa Brennan, she's late now. She wrote about the transmission of affect, right? That when we say, I can come into a room and I can cut, I can almost cut the tension in the room with a knife. That's not just rhetorical. That's not metaphorical. There is a sense in which the air is populated and alive with emotions. There is a sense in which emotions are territorial and they enlist bodies in how they come to matter. I'm trying to build up a story here that suggests that the soul, that again, crystal-centric formulation of the soul as something within us, something that escapes the body when we die. What if we started to think of the soul as not within, you know, according to a Christocentric imagination, or without, according to some deterministic empirical scientific imagination, but as between, right? That our souls are large, they're ecological, so that in a sense, Tim, your grandfather, wasn't the body that we're used to. That was just habitual myth-making, place-making ritual of modernity. 
to situate him within that body was to cut him off from his feces, right? That was, <laughs> was to cut him off from the morphological extensions that is still him, right? The labels of his body, the way he moved and interacted with the world, imprinting and marking the world and creasing the world in, in different ways. I just made up that verb, creasing. But you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> so if we think things that way, then he's still here. And it'll be a mistake from that perspective to suggest that we are done with those relationships, that death is a finality. Even death is emergent, right? The meaning and the practices of death, death is a concatenation of different species, is a multi-species salon. It's not just something that happens to things. It's a co-production of a parliament of more than human and human bodies. So it's also changing. It's also a conversation. So I think your father's ghost is with us. Your grandfather's ghost is with us, right? Maybe not saying boo, but saying different things, doing different things. Bio, that really makes me want to ask you, if I hold, in my words, like this more expansive understanding of what's happening in my body, in the bodies of my ancestors, in the spirit that is, or the soul that is not contained only within me. It makes me, and this is a big question. So I can, I can think of, yeah, I'm just going to ask you the big question. Like, how does that change how I choose to move through the world? I see you using words like post-activism. I can't imagine, I haven't read any of your writing that talks about systems change. I, you know, I'm just curious as you write, like, how are you thinking about if we're having a clarion call to shape shift right now? How does that impact how we move through the world, right? With this larger expanded idea. Mm -hmm. If I were to ask you to think of the human, just imagine the human, what comes to mind immediately? Yeah, well, I, I imagine a body, right? Like a person or a group of people. Right. And actually usually white even, even like in that estimation, when you said it, visualization, right? I want to ask you about blackness, but yes, but like, oh, it's just a body, a person right there. What I understand to be a person. George Clooney. Let's just stick with George Clooney, right? Great. Excellent. So human. <laughs> I mean, of all the humans we could have chosen, we went to George Clooney. I feel like that's a nice one. Is it because he's a dog person? I think he's probably a dog person. I think that's probably why, isn't it? It's like there's subtle bias creeping in everywhere. We've just got to be on our guard. Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Tim, we need to have a different conversation about <laughs> George Clooney then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Was it Fred Moulton that said the vessel of logistics and by logistics, he meant the colonizing force that clears the wilds and insists on planting the centrality of the human. He, he says that the, the first vessel that was a vessel of oppression wasn't a slave ship. It was the human body, mm. flesh conceptualized, right? Another friend of mine, well, Fred Moulton isn't a friend, but he's a distant colleague and mentor. A friend of mine, Marisol de la Cadena, professor, colleague, she writes, or she's, no, she hasn't written about this yet, but we had this conspiratorial conversation, some of our private talks that hasn't leaked into the public yet. And I remember her saying to me that I think black bodies were imported into the human, right? The human is this colonial assemblage that needed props, right? And so it took black bodies situating them at the end of the spectrum, closer to the animal, at the bottom of the hull of the ship, right, closer to the natural resources, in order to build the myth of the human, the human being the transcendent figure, 
mostly embodied by the white male, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So your question about what changes then, and the reason why I asked about your perception of the human, is that the human is not, again, thinking through Gregory Bateson and Spinoza and Henry Bergson and Karen Barad and Chinua Achebe. The human is not just a stable thing. The human is a map, right? The, even our bodies are cartographies. They are not ours, you know. They're, our bodies are not do not belong to us. That's within the clearing. Within modern civilization, we say things like our body because we need to lay claim to it, you know, we need a sy within a system of entitlement. But the body is not to be owned. The body is more promiscuous than any propertied notion can allow us to hold. But your question is, how do we, could you reframe it again? How do we stay yeah. with? So I was thinking, you know, like m many of us and certainly our listeners kind of go through the world looking at what's happening and saying, there you go. Things need to change. It's hard right now. I need to, I need to like live into my activism. I need to make systems change. Right. And so there's kind of this orientation to, to making change. And, and action. And so I'm curious with like this expanded understanding of our bodies as a, as a cartography, as our souls as being bigger than us and something that happens between us. There you go. How does that show, how does that change how we show up in the world? So what this expanded, this ontologically expansive invitation allows us to notice is that if our bodies are tentacular, if they're rhizomatic, if they're there and here, then there is no acting that is not an acting with, right? There is no thinking that is not a thinking with. We obviously like to start tracing agency from the point of intentionality, motivation, learning. It's a very humanist liberal tradition, you know, to situate agency and action within political means, a sociality of human actors, right? Our mistake, I dare say, is that we leave out most of the world and how it comes to materialize in what we are doing. And this is what Africans know very well in their bones. I've, I've just come off a conversation about the risk of victory. Like, we won. Through the 60s, we got our independence. We won. But that is worse than a pyrrhic victory, right? <laughs> because we chased away the colonizers but we were left with all the tools, the paradigms, the systems with which we were colonized. So there is a sense in which we don't act outside of the world to change it. Or in the words of Chinua Achebe, responding to Archimedes, give me a place to stand and I shall move the world. And he says, there is no place to stand. We have to stand with the world and move at its pace. So I will respond summarily by saying this. There is a sense in which we cannot produce transformative moments unilaterally. We, we cannot summarily decide on this is how the future would be. We don't design that way. The myth of human design needs to be composted too, right? We need to bring Ooh, in all it. the other actors. Love it. <laughs> too. So, uh, there's a lot to be said about that. But, but there is also, you know, it's like, a, it's like a knot on a string trying to unravel its own self. There is a sense in which we need a break and this is what I refer to as ontological apostasy, right? This is generative incapacitation, a place where the containment is opened up by something else, something transversal, something erotic, something that is not part of the subject or the object. 
this is where tricksters come in. So in mm. response to the question, and by tricksters, I don't mean me or some other dude somewhere. I mean archetypal flows in the universe. Like one of the mechanisms for novelty in the cosmos is the trickster. The trickster disappoints binaries. It slips through cracks and it allows transgressions to er erupt. So my work is about, when I say post-activism, I'm inviting people to convene at the places that are difficult. I'm inviting a politics to emerge in the places where we're disabled, where we don't know what to do, where we no longer have a political home, where the left is looking a lot like the right and the right is looking like the left. And then we're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what forward moves like or feels like. When things get awkward, that is the space for a rapturous grace, a generous grace that wants to infuse us with new directionalities. But first, we have to learn how to get lost. So I'm not saying people should abandon their activisms or stuff like that. I'm just saying that there is a noticing that sometimes the way we respond to the crisis is the crisis. And then in such moments of noticing, there arises possibilities for new kinds of adventures, new kinds of inquiry. And that is what urgency means to me. It means slowing down. It means making consultations. It means touching. It means staying within the cracks. It means not speaking truth to power, which is what we want to do, speak truth to power all the time. But sometimes speaking truth to power envelopes us in the empiric and colonial imperatives of speaking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let me stop there for now. Mm -hmm. mm. Jews, I see you taking notes. So maybe I'll make a just something, something that's coming up for me. And then, but there's something about um, I'm sitting here, I'm listening, I'm looking back at the screen, I'm listening, I'm looking out, the wind blowing through the trees, and there's some enormous demand to just surrender, to let go of control mm -hmm. in everything mm -hmm. that you're saying. You know, you almost at every level. <laughs> you know, from the conceptual level of like what's right and what's wrong as we get together you know, in increasingly diverse groups of people to try and solve increasingly complex and insurmountable challenges. It's, it's funny because it's like a, it's like a letting go of control and a surrender combined with like a demand for trust, you know, <laughs> like I'm just kind of reflecting back as I sit here and feel like what you're inviting me to do in you know, it's like, it's like, let go surrender there's something bigger than you afoot here you, you know mm -hmm. and you can trust it mm. yeah so i'm just str I'm, I'm struck by that and i'm struck by even yesterday choose and i were given a keynote yesterday and so many of the leaders there were like struck by this message that we were giving that like actually your ability to be in uncertainty is a sign that you're stepping into leadership it's not your the fact that you know the answer that qualifies you as a leader it's the fact that you're willing to say i don't know and you're willing to gather a whole bunch of other people together to see if we might be able to make some progress. And that was just like, still to this day, completely radical for people to think that. And like, it's been like the core of what we've been doing and teaching and engaging with and running for the last 20 years. But still that, that concept, that awakening that like, oh, I don't need to have it sorted and actually I need to surrender. And there's some trust in that. And, and, and in a funny way, that can even be more relaxing than having it under control i don't know i was just literally just i'm just trying to that, that's what's kind of happening for me as i listen to the two of you kind of find your way through this yes yes if if i'm just a quick sci-fi exercise i'm a, i'm a nerd so i might love as it. well i love sci-fi let's do it uh, do do it 
So I, I'm writing a story now about, uh, you can think it along with me, about the an end of time, end of world scenario, right? Somehow we escape, escape here being we leave planet Earth and we colonize a new planet. You know the trope, that's usual. And in colonizing this planet, we find it's quite rich. It has abundant life. There are monsters afoot, dragons everywhere, so to speak. In order to stay within this world, we need a body-proofing me- mechanism. And so we build a spacesuit. And this spacesuit mediates between us and the world, right, that we're meeting f- for the first time. This spacesuit performs many functions. It feeds us. It interprets the world for us through bits and pieces of data that feeds in this visual spectral thing in our faces. It tells us what the world is doing. It tells us how to avoid danger. It tells us where to go. It's navigational, all of that. It's uh, like a Swiss knife. And then we find that in order to sustain this space suit, we need to excavate this planet. We need to dig. We need to we need to destroy it, just like we destroy <laughs> eventually. Destroy the one we're just le- we left behind. And then some of us start to notice that we're repeating that same cycle of destruction again and again. And then we lean close and we basically say what you're saying, brother, that maybe this is a time for trust and this is a time for openings and surrender. Maybe there are things that, are, that exceed us and are bigger than us and are calling us to do different kinds of things. I don't think we can step out of the suit on our own, right? So the part I haven't told you is that the suit has a life. It's AI. It will protect us. It will do everything it can to keep us within it, right? Mm-mm. So what do we do then when the suit wants to save us, but salvation comes at the cost of the very planet we're trying to colonize and live on? This is where the monster comes in. Right. This is where the trickster comes in. Monsters have always been cultural technologies we keep at the side. By we, I mean a grander we, not just humans. But we've learned to keep the ineffability and liminality of the monster to the side, to call the monster when we need it. Stories from Greek mythology, Hecatonchires, Zeus, Olympians have this idea of the monster being brought to the mount to save the day. Right? And I'm thinking about the agency of the monster today, which stands in contrast with Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, who defeats the monster and arrives summarily. I'm thinking about the monster's journey, and I think we're in a time of the monster's journey. Right, The monster also has a say. What does the monster do? It's the monster's claws that will open up the spacesuit. We're really thinking about not just a pandemic, not just a virus and the affects of this time, we're thinking about the ways we're being called to fall to the earth and not arrive intact, where humility literally means becoming humus like earth, to become like earth. But it will take the agency of the monster to incapacitate us. And that's the blessing there, where we're disabled. That is fucking awesome. Thank you. Like That is like, it's the monster's claws that will open the spacesuit. Yes. I love that. I don't know if you can hear, but the little dog at my foot is uh, just gave a couple of little barks. I think of affirmation. I think that's how I'm going <laughs> to. Now, did you hear <laughs> any cats? No cats. Rosie's right? with us. There, there is that. No, because they're like, bio, I got that. Whatever. I'm going on. 
I know what you said. Let's keep it moving. Exactly. That's why <laughs> they're rolling their eyes now. Oh, there he goes. Excuse me. So that's why I can't stand cats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you you know, and cats love the people who don't love them. Like they're just all about it. But um, let's see. I have a question about. I I mean, and so as you were talking, and this whole time I was I kind of had this imagery of like kind of personal unspooling or unraveling. And as you talked about the monster's claws, like opening up the spacesuit, I had a question around like, and how do we begin to open ourselves up to those claws? Mm -hmm. What does it look like to actually lean into the monster and trickster rather than being in fear? Mm -hmm. As you were talking, I was like, Tim said, this takes a lot of trust. It gives me relaxation. And I was like, yes, and equal parts fear. And, you know, like, and what does it take to like open up your chest to those claws? Mm. There is a concept used by medical practitioners, biologists, I believe, called iatrogenesis or iatrogenic uh, situations. And this is where medicine becomes sick, right? The very attempt to heal and cure and, you know, excise the demons or exorcise or excise the demons becomes demonic itself if you know what i mean the the like performing surgery and leaving your gloves in someone's belly you know so this is that's an iatrogenic situation it's like the medicine becomes ill the medicine becomes sick Mm. i'm also quite interested in the places where the illness becomes you know medicine and i think this is what we're talking about here when a babalao a babalao is a shaman hyphen healer hyphen priest hyphen lawyer you know healing is a ravishing cosmological practice for the yoruba people it's not just putting people back together again it's negotiation with orishas it's listening to plants it's calling on ancestors it's it's pressing things into people's bodies and sometimes it is cutting open the flesh right applying a wound becomes a form of healing becomes a form of shapeshift, right? I'm thinking about all the ways that we learn to practice and place make the world, how we, how we make, how even activism and counterculture could be part of this place-making practice. Like our attempts to pull down modernity becomes an intrinsic part of modernity. You know, you know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? And, mm-hmm. and we, like, we're fighting for the power. We're going to speak truth to power. And modernity is like, yes. More of that. Sustain me. This is how I'm worshipped, right? And so the question then becomes, how do we refuse worship? How do we, how do we turn away? How do we become something different? If our bodies are cartographies, not stable Newtonian atoms moving in space-time, but space-time configurations, then the question then becomes, how do we turn differently? How do we lose our way? How do we perform a line of flight, you know, in Deleuzean imagination? How do we break out of the circle of convergence? So opening up for me is about leaning into the places that modernity has branded as ill. You know, the sign is where the shadows are, where the darkness is. Modernity is a regime of light. It's a regime, it's a paradigm of rectilinearity. It's a posture, right? It's felt in our bodies, how we show up, how we wake up in the world, how we type in our computers. There's a forward-facing posturality to modernity. And so it's felt in our bodies. It's not something outside. We embody the paradigms that we live in. 
our body ways and our body paths, you know, are all part of our bodies, right? So the thing then is to shift, is to dance then, is to break the spell, that sensorial monoculture. How do we break that spell? Clues are to move, like I said, to move in the places, towards the places that modernity would have us not go to. One of them is trauma. And that's, I've just broken open the seal, the last seal of the book of Revelations here by mentioning trauma, (laughs) because that's a a canyon, a grand canyon's worth of conversations and concept and unpacking here that I don't know that I can do. But I would say this, that trauma is not universal. There are cross-cultural conversations to be had about the concept of trauma. There's a politics to trauma that is traceable, at least one genealogy is traceable back to the advent of the train and to the railway. <laughs> yes, yes. There was, I mean, trauma has come in form of different names. I mean, you could trace trauma to a drapetomania, which was a name given to attempts by slaves to escape the plantation. This is psychology. Giving names to... Um, the feeling, the desire to want to escape is a form of trauma, <laughs> right? Um, right. So the trauma has taken different names over time, but it really came into its own, at least from one particular reading, when we started to engineer the world and to lay down tracks and to create time zones, if you will. Mm. So that in a sense, trauma is a body-making mechanism designed to sh- put at bay the influx of the modern human. Oh my goodness. I want to dive in more deeply there because (laughs) I feel like, I mean, I just feel like, I mean, we've said multiple times, it feels like the discourse on trauma is a net positive and yet it is keeping us so bound. Yeah, right. And for me, I would just say, and I know we only have five minutes, it's it's really hard to help move people out of. Well-meaning, gifted, caring, spiritual, committed folks to move out of that discourse at this moment can feel impossible. Yes. So I'm just really excited to hear you kind of beginning to speak that language and take us into that canyon. It's a civilizational ethic. It's it's morality. I, I forget the name of these authors, but they they I, I would use their phrase. A trauma is more is less a clinical concept and more a politics of stabilizing bodies within a particular mode of being. This is not to dismiss suffering. No, this is not to say that things, bad things don't, well, I'm just going to speak in that popular way. Bad things happen, of course. But bad things happening is not commensurate to the naming of a binary, the binary that is now stabilized at the heart of modernity. In fact, at the heart of contemporary consumer capitalism, right? And all its moralities is the perpetrator and the victim, right? This right. binary right. is the yes. engine room yes. of our politics today. It almost seems to have usurped all the conversations about identity and justice. It's the victim and the perpetrator. Even celebrities are, and this is part of the seedlings that has given birth to the forest that it might be, you might call cancel culture. There, there is a lot happening at present that is really an invitation to be studious and to be cautious about how we proceed forward. And so I'm listening to Harriet Tubman, who's saying, yeah, 
this is the time to wade in the water, to lose your way, to fall off the highway, because we're heading to places that are not interesting. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> that feels so good. It just feels like you've just like kind of sent me on my way today. Great. Thank <laughs> you. Like there's just so much, so much richness here. I am aware that we are coming to the end of our time and that, you know, that's makes me a little sad, but I want to respect everyone's time today. Um, one of the things we ask folks before we close up is, are there any words, a poem, a quote, something you heard from your kids, um, something you learned from your dog, anything you're carrying with you right now that just kind of buoys you up or um, is carrying you along? The most eloquent thing my daughter, who is now nine, but she once said something to me at two years old, which is still the most eloquent thing she's ever said to me, was shh. And it was in Richmond, Virginia. And that day I woke up in the morning and I said, I'm going to do anything she says for me to do today. It, like I've said to many countless people, I've not tried that ever since. It was one time. It was, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> a, a worthy experiment. A worthy you experiment. Know. A worthy. I should no. get a hug from both of you for even attempting uh, to do that. It was actually knighted by King Charles. <laughs> yeah, King Charles the Third, nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I agree. Oh, it was. It was. There's. There's not. A, there are not enough lifetimes to compose a response, uh, or you know, to a toddler who now has the power to do anything she wants to do. She, basically, she, she, she ran with it. I told her she understood exactly what the duty was. And she said, okay, we're going to swim. And I'm like, I, but I don't know how to swim. But I've already said yes. I've said I'm going to say yes to everything. And so we go on this journey together. There's a swimming pool nearby in the estate. And so we're going to the swimming pool. But there's also a lake, mind you. But I think we're heading to the swimming pool. And she says, no, that's the swimming pool pointing at the lake. And I'm like, no. Haven't you seen your dad? I'm black. And I know I'm perpetuating stereotypes about black people not doing how to swim. But yes, I am, <laughs> I am the stereotypic embodiment of liking fried chicken and not liking cats and not knowing how to swim. <laughs> <laughs> I am the embodiment of that. I'm very conservative in that way. I'm almost Republican when it comes to those stereotypes. So, um, <laughs> yes, we're, we're heading to the swimming pool and she says, no, that's not a simple, the lake is simple. And we head over there to cut the long story short. Um, we stop by the lake, by the edge, and she's just, um, I'm hoping she doesn't say we get into it. She doesn't at the moment, but then she just keeps quiet. Just this elderly repose, this spirit just envelopes her and she's quiet and just staring at the water. And, and I'm like, mm, maybe this is the time to sneak in some words about ancestry and Yoruba people and the fact that she's multiracial and Indian and Nigerian. And, uh, well, as I start to speak, she says, shh, keep quiet. And uh, I've said this too many times. I'm, uh, it's a broken record at this moment, but it's, but that was one of the most profound moments of my life. Like the shush was, and I felt it like an invitation to listen that there was a lot more speaking, that the world was doing things on its own and that didn't depend on my eloquence or my intelligence or my work or anything. And 
I'm eternally grateful for that gift of the shh. Thank you for joining us today, this evening for you. 10 o'clock, nearly. It's 11 now, brother. Thank you so much for turning up at 11 and just diving into these conversations with us and being willing to join us and answer questions and pull things apart. Enormously grateful for your for your time. Mm-hmm. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Tuesday. <laughs> Thank you so, so much. This was just amazing. Thank you. Thank you. We'll talk about cats next time. That's the deeper. Absolutely. I mean, I have so much to say. You can't imagine. Yeah. You're going to be a cat person by the time we're done. Oh, okay. A cat convert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I mean, I can be evangelical about this. I feel really like. It's... Oh, okay. Okay. I mean, okay. your microphone is a sign. You are on your way. Yeah. It's going to happen. <laughs> Let's see how that goes, sister. Thank you very much for having me, folks. Thank you. All right, mate.